standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this, the fourth in our series of Manta Views, coming to you midweek because we talk about quite a lot of stuff in this interview that it'd just be better if you heard it sooner rather than later. There will be one more interview coming out on Sunday in which Mickey talks to David Melly and Alan Clark about UK Men's Shed Association, an incredible movement of community spaces for men to connect, converse and create. If you've missed any of our other interviews, you can find them all wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. In the first, Jen chats to comedian and author Dave Chawner and Dr Stephen Anderson about the rise in eating disorders among men. In the second, Mickey talks about being a feminist ally with Chris Green, who founded the UK arm of the White Ribbon Campaign. In the third, I chat to comedian, author and top bloke Matt Ford about the love Labour's lost. And if you like that pun, it occurred to me after we published it that I could also have gone with I'm melting. But come on, Hannah, tell us about this new episode. Oh, man, what a treat you have ahead. Joe Penhall's play, Blue Orange, is 20 years old, and given Mick reviewed it when it first came out, I'd like to apologise again for bringing this to her attention. A new version of it, starring Michael Balligan, Giles Torreira and Ralph Davis, is currently being put on at Northampton's Royal and Durngate Theatres. I spoke to Michael and Giles about the show's themes of race, mental illness and truth, as well as the emotional rollercoaster of last year's National Theatre production, of the death of England, Delroy. We talk about Hamilton, obviously, and also about the advice they'd give working class youngsters about breaking into acting. Listener, I loved them and they love each other. I spent the morning of my birthday talking to them and I regret nothing. A few notes. Blue Orange is on until December the 4th. Would it transfer elsewhere? I don't know. I hope so. But in the meanwhile, if you want to see it, go to the Royal and Durngate's box office for a ticket. We also talk about the death of England face to face, which is on Sky Arts tonight. If you are listening on Thursday, the 25th of November, if you're not, it should be available on catch up services. And lastly, I mentioned that Michael has done a few really good interviews in the past about his life before acting, which included time in both the care and the prison system. I'll put a link to one of those interviews in the show notes. We talk a lot about the need for good role models for young men, and he is absolutely that. Enjoy. Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by Giles Torreira. Hi, how are you doing? Great, thank you. And Michael Balligan. Hello, lovely to be here. Who are both appearing in a new version of Joe Penhall's Blue Orange, which opened last night, as we speak, at the Royal and Durngate in Northampton. You're actually at the Royal, Michael said, which is a lovely little theatre that was my local theatre when I was growing up. Brilliant. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful. How was opening night? It was great. I mean, we usually get one or two shows before you, you know, go into press or whatever. So we kind of met during the day, had our dress rehearsal, and then kind of just did the show. However, we have been doing the show for three weeks now. We were in Oxford last week and they were in Bath for two weeks prior to that. Let's talk about Blue Orange. I'm going to start with you, Michael, because Christopher, your character, is kind of the crux of it. Can you tell us a little bit about Christopher and what it was that drew you to that role? I saw a production of it at the Young Vic a few years ago with Daniel Kaluuya playing Christopher. Ooh. And... What struck me about, about his performance in that was I was watching this play and I was thinking, number one, we don't see characters like Christopher on stage a lot. 
Number two was I recognised that guy. I recognised him. I knew that character. I had friends that were probably Christopher, but they just had never been diagnosed or they'd never thought that they had a problem. And it made me realise that actually, you know, mental health, because it's so subjective, that there are probably a lot more people with mental health issues than we actually realise. Because I was thinking of friends that I had that I could go, yeah, he does that and he does that and he's like that. And he said things like that. But he's just, you know, floating around willy-nilly, just yeah. li- living his life. And then this argument with the two doctors about, you know, whether he was schizophrenic or not, kind of, I felt like having seen the play and heard those arguments, me questioning some of my friends, I kind of became those two doctors in my own way. And obviously the writing's really brilliant and it's such a good play, you know, as a whole piece. And from seeing that, I always thought to myself, I'd like to explore that, explore that play one day. And then... You know, with everything that happened in the last two years with the pandemic, you know, what that what that said about mental health for all of us, the whole, you know, the Black Lives Matter situation, what that said about, you know, black people and how, you know, there was all this rhetoric and all these ideas started to come out about institutionalized racism, white privilege, all of these things that a lot of people were kind of unaware of before and they became quite prominent. And I started to think about this play and, you know, it was written 20 years ago, but a lot of the things that are in it are relevant to now. Yeah. And I thought, and I, when I was watching it at the time, I thought the guy that was playing Robert was an amazing actor and he was great. All of them were brilliant. But his argument about black psychosis in the black community, I thought there was some validity in that. But I felt like the way it was written, it was as if it was a kind of trope, like Joe Pennell being the genius that he is and, you know, He's a very honest, honest writer. But I felt, what would it be like with someone who those issues were a lot closer to home for them and it wasn't just a trope and it was actually a battle that they were fighting, you know, for a bigger cause. And me and Giles spoke extensively about it and everything. And Giles, we were meant to do a reading. We were meant to do another play that Giles had written in Bristol and the idea was to read it while we were in Bristol. But we couldn't do it because of COVID concerns. So that got pushed back. And then, um, yeah, and then the opportunity came up through Giles and through James to, to, to actually do it. So that was, that's how it came to, came to fruition. Giles, you are Robert, as discussed. Yeah. Tell us a bit about who he is as a man and what you're getting out of playing him. He's the um, psychiatric consultant at the hospital where Chris is. He's invited to what Chris feels like is his sort of closing meeting with, with the junior Dr. Bruce before he goes home. And Robert's invited to sort of um, sit in on this meeting. So he's the kind of guy who is in charge of the department. He's a consultant. And as Mike said, the part as written by Joe is written as a white character, mm. the white man. So that's the big difference with our production. We're saying, okay, well, what if this is a, a black man? So for me, that was really interesting because... In, in a way, in the same way that Mike said about we don't often see characters like Christopher. We certainly don't see characters like Robert as we have him in this play, mm. which is a senior consultant. And so I was really interested in what that experience was like, really, for people. So I did a lot of research in, in terms of um, the figures who actually were the first consultants in the country. Uh, so for me, yeah, it's a really complicated rich character i was looking to do something which was 
as interesting as possible. And uh, again, when Mike suggested the play, I thought, actually, that's a really, really interesting idea. So the more I looked at it, the more I, the more interested I became in it. And so that's really what, what, what sort of drew me to the character. And, and, and also, you know, the fact that when I started to look at it, as Mike said, it's essentially about rich characters looking at the way black people are treated in the NHS, but also in society. And that, that very simple thing was my, my way into really wanting to mm. investigate who the character was. So, do you mind if I jump in there? No, God, no, please do. Well, something, something that I find really interesting that, that I've just kind of realised is that some people have watched this production and they've asked questions like, do you think Robert, who Giles plays, doesn't like black people? Yeah? Right. But the thing is, what I've realised from just listening to Giles there is that actually, in, a, in that kind of system where there is a hierarchy and you're a person of colour, it's not as easy to come in guns blazing going, I want to change the system. Mm-hmm. That's the problem with Bruce's character. Mm-hmm. Bruce's character is a guy who comes in and he's like, he's been there six months, he's like, right, I want to change the system. But what Robert's trying to say to him is you can't do it like that. You have to play the game. And this is one of the problems that we have in society, right? When you're trying to change institutional, systemic problems, you have to kind of play ball with the, with the, with, with the gods yeah. in order to get your point across. And just listening to what Giles said there, now I've realised that that's kind of what he's doing. Bruce wants to keep Christopher in the hospital. Robert's saying, we can't do that because we don't have enough beds and I have bosses to answer to. But at the same time as I'm saying that, I am working on a piece of work, a bigger piece of work, that will hopefully help a disproportionate number of black people that we have in this system. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's down to interpretation, but it just kind of hit me now that that's just his method of trying to help the yeah. bigger picture. It's really interesting because, I mean, it's such a cliche in theatre to say, oh, this play's more relevant now than it's ever been. But in yeah. fact, I mean, this is one of the things that seems to be genuinely the case. I mean, the questions it asks about race, mm-hmm. about the health service, about, I mean, look how many people were sent home to free up beds during COVID. You know, it's about the cracks in the NHS. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it also asks a pretty interesting question, which again, I mean, very 2021 question is, I mean, what is the truth? Who is in charge of deciding what is true and what is not true? Yeah, And and that is really, really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Tell me about finally being on stage together. (laughs) I I say again, because you've worked together before, but and we will get to that. But what's it like being actually on stage together at the same time? That was the first thing, right? Because Michael was like, "Okay, well, we should do this play." Um, We've been, as Mike said, we were going to do my play, which would have been happening at the same time in Bristol. Um, So we were looking forward to that. We've done lots of other little things in the past, filmed different bits. Obviously, there was like the whole Death of England thing that we were working on. So to actually kind of get to do this, and in the play, the play's got three acts, and the, the second act is just Robert and Christopher. So it's the two of us on stage for however long it is, 20 minutes or 15 minutes, or whatever it is. Mm. And, um, yeah, for me, that's like a dream. That's an absolute dream. If I could only do plays with the two of us <laughs> forever, that would be it. That would be it. Honestly, that would be it. It's, you know, we get on great, and... Um, We've got a lot of respect for each other, so it's cool to be in this play together. So we're looking for something else to do after yeah. this. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, right for me, <laughs> yeah, for me, it's like, like I was really, I was, if I'm really honest, I was quite nervous about working with Charles, and I think 
not 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 because I've worked with them before, but I was like, you know, we had this idea and it came to fruition. It's like, right, we're doing it now. There's no, you know, we're actually doing it. So I was a bit like, uh oh, I better make sure that I'm on my A game a little bit. And I think initially in rehearsal, that kind of was not messing with me, but I was a bit, I was thinking about that too much and forgetting about the fact that me and Giles actually have this kind of like connection, this relationship where you can just trust it. Mm-hmm. And, and the, beautiful, the beautiful thing about working with someone like Giles, someone, an actor of his ilk, someone of his experience, someone of his caliber, that, you know, it's just you can, you're allowed to mess up and you're not going to feel judged. Giles is never going to make you feel like you're a bad actor. Like, it's just that kind of person. So for me, it's been an actual amazing, massive learning experience. Huge, huge learning experience working with Giles, honestly. Uh, like, he is, for me, one of the best theatre actors in the country, I think. Personally, it's just my opinion. Sorry, I know we're not here to... So, like, let me stop, let me stop. stop well, let's, no, let's start ranking them, let's do it. Giles <laughs> at the top. Right, first there's Giles, and then... No, I'm joking. Well, the thing is, the thing is, right, this all started because a friend of... We have a mutual friend, and when Michael was at, um, in his third year at RADA, my friend, this mutual friend, said, you need to come and see this this um, production. You're going to come and see this production with me. Third year production of RADA, and I went along, and he didn't really say... We spoke, we spoke about Mike and I spoke about this before. Our friend didn't kind of say, you need to see Michael Balligan, but he kind of said, just come along, do you want to come and see this play? And I went, and Mike came on, and I was, like, completely... I've had that twice before where, and I'm sure you've probably had it, where you just... Someone just walks on stage and for a moment you're just completely transfixed mm-hmm. by, you're not quite sure, you have to catch up with what's, what you're actually seeing. And that's, that's just being a good actor, I think, or, or having some kind of quality. And I saw that in my, to be, you know, right from the beginning. So for me, it's always been, it's always been uh, a case of like, okay, well, what can we do together? Like, you know, well, it, it's, a, it's, kind of, it's a no brainer really. So it's, it, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I've told you that. And it, so doing this is, 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 is beautiful, really. Do you know, Michael, I listened to an interview with you the other day when you were talking about sort of the first time you went to the theatre and then you mentioned the second time that you went to the theatre and it really made me laugh because the second time you went, you went to see Mercury Fur. And yeah, it, just, yeah. it just seems of all the things to pick in a theatre to go and see. It's just, yeah. I, and I thought, yeah, maybe you should get Michael in a remake of that. That would be incredible. That would be nice. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Play. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... Because the thing is, I, like I said in it, I, think, I don't know what it was you listened to, but I had a particular perception of theatre in my head before I saw that play. And whenever I thought of theatre before then, I don't, I don't know why, but whenever I thought of theatre before, before I'd done any acting, I, I always thought of Henry VIII. I don't know what that is. Okay. I don't know why. That image, of, I just thought tights, you know, yeah, those hats. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And seeing Mercury Fur, I was like, oh my God, there are plays that exist in a world that I can see and I can kind of relate to. Yeah. And that kind of blew my mind. Yeah. You know? Mm. For anyone listening who doesn't know, I mean, Mercury Fair was so outrageous that Faber and Faber refused to print it. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. They, they, they wouldn't print it because it was considered so controversial. Um, mm. So, yeah, what what a second step. In, you know, it reminds me, a guy I used to work with said to me once, I don't like films. And I was just so like, how can you not enjoy films? And I said, just go home. Just, you know, get a can of beer, just turn the telly on and watch a film that's on. And he came back the next day and said to me, no, I still don't like him. And I said, what did you watch? And he said, uh, I watched Downfall, which is like the, film, <laughs> the wow. film about the last days in Hitler's bunker. And I was like, maybe oh. like pick, 
Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> yeah. or Star Wars or, or something. Lord of the Rings or something. Yeah, before you decide that you don't like cinema. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, we've mentioned the death of England. <laughs> what an emotional roller coaster that was. I mean, that was an emotional roller coaster to watch, let alone to live through, as the pair of you did. Just to fill anyone in who doesn't know, Plin Dyer and Roy Williams's play, which opened sort of in spring 2020, starring. Rafe Spall at the National Theatre. I did see that. I don't know if either of you saw it. It was incredible. Absolutely. Like, genuinely, like, I mean, just, I actually felt like I went home smelling like Rafe Spall. It was just, <laughs> there was so much of him just sort of yeah. flying around the room. That finished just before lockdown. Then lockdown happened. Clint Dyer decides to write another, another play, The Death of England, Delroy. And the pair of you are cast, you as the lead, Giles. Michael, you are the understudy. I mean, I was thinking, is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? A theatre's going to open again. And just before it opens, Giles, you are taken ill and have to pull out of it. Well, no. Okay. I didn't pull out. No, I didn't pull out of anything. I was replaced. That's basically what happened. It wasn't my, it wasn't my, my decision to not be in that production. But, yeah, I, I, was, I did have to have surgery and I was in hospital. So, thankfully, Michael could then step up and, and do and do the show and do an amazing job. And just, yeah. just, just to add into that, it was actually Giles who said, I want Michael to understudy me. Right. Yeah, it was actually Giles that said, I, you know, I want Michael, I want Michael in the room with me while we're doing this, while we're going through this process, because I think he has a lot to bring to this story mm-hmm. in terms of just insight into the world, whatever, you know, into the cat, into the world. So, you know, if, you know, I wouldn't have been understudying Giles. He actually requested which doesn't normally, I don't think that normally happens. You know, they normally audition for an understudy, yeah. and go for an audition process. But Giles had said to the team, I want Michael Balligan to understudy me. And so you end up opening the play. Just to anyone who hasn't, who, like I say, who hasn't followed this story, we're talking about a play where you're out there on your own on stage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For something that you probably weren't expecting to actually be out there on their own. Talk me through that experience. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so interesting how these things work because a few months before that, I'd, I'd had to leave a production of a one-man show because I, I just I didn't feel like the infrastructure of that process w- would allow me to do the best job I could do, so I had to kind of walk away from it. So fast forward to, to the Death of England process, you know, we're in the room, Giles is rehearsing, he's doing his thing, you know, where after every time we finish audition, me and Charles would go off and just have chats about about the work, about about everything, about any everything that's happening. And obviously, that was a really weird time because, like, we were still kind of in lockdown at the time. Mm-hmm. So we were coming yeah, into yeah. the theatre, and there was, and it's a big national theatre. Yeah. There's hardly anyone there. There's no one there. Yeah, there's no one there. <laughs> Yeah, like all the rooms were closed. It was just yeah, yeah. Nothing. Central London looks like twenty eight yeah, days later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so like I'm going from sitting in my flat by myself, twiddling in my thumbs, thinking, what am I going to do? All of a sudden, I'm in the National Theatre rehearsing, or you know, in a room with Giles, with Clint, with all the team. So that was just kind of mind boggling in itself. So we're working through this thing, and then obviously, you know, unfortunately, Giles gets ill. So, you know, as the understudy, I'm like, oh, this. You know, this is this is crazy. You know, all our thoughts and this well with Giles, like, is he going to be all right? How is he getting on? Hope he's going to be okay. I wouldn't be there if it wasn't for him. So, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, 
Right. It's it's almost as if for me, I was like, because obviously I was so nervous. Mm. So I was thinking, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to get out and be a living stage by myself. But something stopped me and said, look, you wouldn't be if it wasn't for Charles. He's had this faith in me. I have to go into a place in myself that I've never been to before. And Clint quite nicely got race full to like have a phone conversation with me because he knew I was going to kind of do what he was he did. And he said a few things to me that I'll never forget. And one of them was, when I know right now you're probably feeling like the, it's all coming on top of you. Yeah. He said, that's how I felt. I was, I was so anxious. I didn't know if I could do it. But the thing is, he said that when you step out onto the stage, something will happen where it will kind of click and you'll just dive off and it will be great. And he said, what you need to remember is that once you've had this experience, there won't be a lot of things you don't think you can do. He said, it's not about the accolades and all that kind of stuff after doing something like this. He said, it's what you realise that you're capable of as an actor. That's what you should hold on to. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, and, and, and I'm realising that now. And like, yeah, it was a weird experience because Charles was ill. I'm rehearsing the play that he was meant to be doing. And then we're getting closer and closer. And, you know, we're working it in the room and things are coming together. And, and then, you know... It, it was just a really, really, really surreal experience. But yeah, it, it's one that I'll never forget in my life. And I'm very grateful for, to the National, to Clint, to Roy, to Giles for for for, do, for, for putting that piece of work out there. Because I think it resonated with a lot of people. Yeah. But then two, two weeks in, we go back into lockdown. Yeah, yeah, that was... I mean, like I say, <laughs> just genuine emotional roller coaster. I mean, ha- ha- how did that feel? I mean, because it was so interesting because I remember I was on stage. I was doing a show on the day when Boris Johnson announced that there was going to be uh, another lockdown in, the, in like two days' time or whatever it was. And so, so that, that announcement was coming out. I remember I came out on the stage and like half the audience had their phones out. You know, like you could just see these white lights dotted around in the audience. And I was thinking, why is everyone on their phone at the same time? We're doing, doing, I'm doing my thing. And bits that normally people would found funny, there was absolutely no laughter. So I was thinking, something's not right. Something's mm. going on. I started, started thinking it was me. I started thinking, what? <laughs> I've got something on my, on my clip, wasn't it? <laughs> and then, like, my, my, after the show, I had a couple of friends, and they were like, yeah, man, like, Boris Johnson announced literally minutes before the show that we're getting to another lockdown. And, yeah, like, it was quite sad because I felt like, you know, with you know, with a with a full run, you know, I could have made a lot more of it, mm-hmm. found things and whatever, whatever. But at the same time, you can't get away from what's going on in the world. You know, like there's bigger things going on. Yeah. And I and I realized in myself, it was like, if we're gonna save some lives, then that's the fundamental, most important thing right now is people's safety. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. I, it was like, you know, I've I got to tell the story to to to, to audiences. It came out on on YouTube for one day and you know I was like you know for whatever reason the universe whatever you want to call it this is how it's going to be and this is what this is what's happened so yeah. you just have to kind of live with that and that's and you know for a bigger greater cause than me doing a show to an audience and that was great yeah that's a great attitude to have Giles your disappointment I mean actually first question you are well now yes yeah 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 great thank you yeah your disappointment somewhat mitigated, I'm guessing, by the fact that there is a third instalment of The Death of England, Face to Face, which is appearing on Sky Arts, which stars you. Yeah. Hooray. And, 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 and Neil Maskell as uh, Michael, 
that, that Rafe played originally. Hannah, did you, actually, did you get to see Michael do it? Did I didn't. Uh, we, we were having that conversation before because I was desperate for a ticket, but I just... I just couldn't get one. It was just, yeah. they went so quick. It was very, very special. I've it no was doubt. very, very special. Yeah, and then, then they, they wrote the third part to it, which I'm not sure whether they were thinking about doing it on stage first, or, but it anyway, ended up with the idea that no, it's going to be on screen. And then so Clint told me about it. And as usual, it's like, okay, well, is it going to happen? Is it not? You know, whatever. <laughs> I was like, okay, just let, you know, let me know if it's happening. Let me know when it's real. Because also it's, it's going to be made by the National Theatre. There's not going to be any money there, blah, blah, blah. So, okay, fine. Let me know. And then it, it came up. It happened. He said, yep, yeah, we're doing it. And there was very little time to get it together. As usual, that's what happened with Death Figure Delroy. There's no time. It's like, okay, we're doing it. So you start stressing about that and trying to learn it. And even though it's not one character, there's two characters to share the load, you're still doing like speeches that are just pages and pages and pages and pages and pages long. But it was really cool. It was really, really good. Clint and Roy came up with something which is good because, because you've got the two characters now, they can kind of bounce off each other. Mm. So you kind of get to see that interaction, which I thought was cool. You got to sort of see new bits of their personality because they're interacting with each other. And again, he was able to, or they were able to like address, I'm trying to think of it all now, but they were able to address a lot of the questions that we've all been asking, or certainly I've been asking throughout lockdown, throughout the last year and a half, two years. Um, they were able to sort of put all that into the play again. So it felt really good. And it was fun. It was really hard, really, really hard to do, really hard shoot. But we had a good team. The kind of frustration that I had left over Right. I was kind yeah. of, I was kind of able to sort of put it put into that's kind of what Delroy is about. Delroy being sat in his flat and and working out that you know he, he the way he's going through things and processing things isn't isn't really working for him. It needs to kind of change. He needs to kind of find out another way to go about it. We we rehearsed for two weeks, which was cool, and then we shot it for three weeks. And again, like Michael Neil Neil Maskell, who plays uh, Michael, is an absolutely amazing actor. He's been acting since he was like nine. Didn't go to drama school. He just learned on the job. He's one of those wow. actors. So he knows his way around that camera, that lens, backwards. And I'm less experienced. I, I, I'm in theatre mainly. And if I do screen stuff, it's like a day here, a day there. Neil's been doing it. And we're the same age, both 44. And he's been doing it since he was nine. So I learned everything from him. And it was really interesting because we're in rehearsals. We had two weeks of rehearsals. And I was great. I loved that. And it drove Neil crazy because he's, he's used to being on set. And so you don't have any, you know, in film, you don't have any rehearsal. You just kind of learn the lines, turn up and do it. Yeah. So he, he would kind of go crazy. And I'd be like, at four o'clock in the afternoon, he'd be like, I'm knackered. I need to fucking go home. <laughs> and, I, and I'd be like, I'd be like, yeah, let's go. You know, I'm ready. I'm, I, was in my, I was in my zone. And then, but I knew that by the time he got onto set, it'd be the other way around. Is I'd be kind of slightly more out of my depth and that he'd be completely in his element so i kind of made the most of our rehearsals yeah and again we we connected it was really really cool working with him and um i haven't seen the film yet but people who have said it's it works so hopefully people will like it i think it's on this week i think it's on, it is on this tomorrow. week on sky yeah, Arts, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 Now, Joel, you are also entertaining me because I'm currently reading your book, Hamilton oh. <laughs> and Me. Look at that coat. Do you miss wearing that coat? 
I miss wearing that coat. It's incredible. I'd wear it all the time. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to. <laughs> I, wanted to uh, I wanted to nick it when they um, when I left, but everything goes in storage. But yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful costumes. I would be remiss not to ask you a question about Hamilton because I bloody love it. Talking of great experiences in the theatre, it is incredible. Aaron Burr, sir, it's just such an incredible role and you get all the best songs. I mean, it's just <laughs> such a great role. Yeah. Let's say, take, for example, the room where it happens. You know, you're leaping around on stage. You must have been so fit to do that. You're leaping around and you're singing and then, you know, it ends and you're in the spotlight on your own and, you know, you strike the pose. The place goes wild. And it does every time because I've seen it many times. What else sort of in the business compares to moments like that? Okay, this is going to sound cheesy, but it's true. But for me, if I do anything, I want to make sure that it's something that I'm really, really passionate about and that I couldn't do anything else apart from that particular role, Mm. that particular story. Otherwise, you know, I won't do it. It's got to be something I can completely just throw myself into. And I have to have that before I say yes to something or before I go for anything um, or before I start rehearsals. I need to know what that is because if the role is good enough, it's going to be really hard. And I think I need, as long as I've got that initial thing which made me want to do it, then when all the shit hits the fan and it gets difficult, I've got that thing to kind of come back to. Actually, no, no, that's why I'm trying to tell the story. That's why I'm trying to tell this character. So for me, there's an element of that in all of it. With Hamilton it was there was sort of a lot more of it in lots of different ways because the audience was gassed from the beginning and they'd had their tickets for like a year or two years or something and they'd been listening to the cast recording for the same amount of time so there was a there was a huge kind of energy that came into the room but it was only a kind of escalation of that essential thing which for me it's there you know when i was at the national the first time which was kind of where i started you know, you're playing Spear Carrier Number One in Troilus and Cressida, or whatever it is. You're playing those kind of parts, <clears throat> and for me, I was always the kind of guy. I mean, there's that cliche of like, there's no such thing as small parts or small actors or whatever. But I was always really interested in. The, doesn't matter, I don't care who it is. If I'm really interested in that character, then that's that's it. That's enough for me. Yeah. So, so everything else is kind of a bit a building on that. The thing about Hamilton was it more than the kind of audience response, what I felt about it was so special was that it allowed me to bring together and use all the different bits of me that I've been um, sort of picking up and collecting throughout my, whatever that was, 16 years of, mm. of, of working at that point, of acting. I find myself during Hamilton rehearsals leaning a lot on it's the Shakespeare plays that I've done and productions at the National or the RSC or whatever, or the Globe or wherever, as well as all the music stuff, I started out in bands when I was when I left school. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a, in, I wanted to be a musician before I wanted to be an actor. So you know, there was lots of different things, lots of stuff from my family, from my background, from my parents' journeys. There was lots of stuff that I could draw on. Whereas normally, you very rarely get a situation where you can almost draw on everything in your entire experience as a human being. And that was the case with, you know, in, in Shakespeare, you get it a lot. Mm. But Hamilton, that was what I really liked about being in Hamilton. The audience's reaction and all of that kind of stuff was great. And also the thing I dug about it was the company. Very rarely do you kind of get a company where you don't really have to 
explain stuff culturally and yeah. how you how you get on and how you relate to each other and how you laugh and what you eat and all that kind of stuff. It's really nice when you don't have to you don't have you can just enjoy that and live in that space and that then allows you to focus more of your energy on the work that you're supposed to be doing. You're not having to worry about why am I the only one in the room and I'm trying to sort of have that struggle. Yeah. Um, so those things are really what made it special for me. Can you sing and dance, Michael? Might we see you in a musical at some point? Um, you'd, be, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest with you, but singing isn't my strong point. Singing is not definitely one of my strong no, points. No, so, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. It looks so joyful. Singing looks like one of the most joyful things on earth, but I can only do it when I'm by myself because it yeah, sounds yeah. dreadful when I do it. <laughs> well, you, can't, you kind of have to, I find with singing, that like I've learned is that you kind of have to step out of the way. To sing, you just have to... You can't think about it too much. You have it's one of those things where if you if you do, you get kind of locked and you blocked and you, you start hitting the wrong note or you you just have to just step out of the way and um and I think that's that's a, a very useful thing. It's, it's almost like pretend, it's almost like pretending you're in the shower when you're doing it in front of an audience, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It is because you like you're in, yeah, exactly that. When you're in the shower, you don't give a shit. You just do it. Yeah, no one's there. It. Yeah. So yeah, but Mike, Mike sings. Mike sings in warm up and around the rehearsal room. Mike sings a bit, and it's it's good. I think I think you're doing yourself a disservice, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Come on, I want you as Hercules, Mike. Exactly. Hercules. You'd be a brilliant. You'd be a mad Hercules, Mike. Yeah. 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 I have one more question. It's predominantly for Michael, but Giles, I'd be interested in your views as well. Now. You've given a couple of interviews, Michael, and we don't need to go over this again about how your journey into acting was unlikely. And there'll be loads of people, young people, youngsters or children or even adults, actually, who want to break into the arts. It's just so hard for working class kids. It's so hard for any kid that, that, you know, perhaps has been into the care system or, you know, they haven't had... A, a drama department at their school they haven't yeah. got the emotional safety net they haven't got the financial safety net and you are someone who made the seemingly impossible possible and I wonder what sort of advice you would give to any youngsters out there who feel like maybe they've left it too late or just it's not for the likes of them yeah what sort of advice you could give practical advice but also you know sort of emotional yeah. advice first thing that I think is that we have a tendency in society to look at art as something that is highbrow, that is um, elitist, mm. you know. When I, that, you know, I said earlier on, when I, when I used to think of plays, I automatically thought of an image of a man, you know, Henry VIII or whatever yeah. that is. And that's something to do with the perception that we have of art. And I think the first thing that we need to realise, actually, is that art is a universal thing. It doesn't matter what background you come from what the colour of your skin is, what your creed is, you know, your sexuality, anything like that doesn't matter because there is going to be a group of people that will be able to relate to whatever you're bringing to the table, you know? And I think the first thing that I'd advise that I'd give to anyone from a working class background or any background, actually, is try and find your truth. You know, try and find your authenticity in who you are. And that in itself is a great piece of art because there is only one of that in this whole world. Mm. You know, there's only one of that. You know, that's the first thing. Then it's about going, okay, you know, 
if you go to these institutions or these places and holding on to that as well as trying to learn and take what you can from what you're being taught because I think a few years ago there was a perception especially with drama schools and it might be the same you know in dance academies and music academies where they go right we want to change you we want to make you this thing that's sellable mm-hmm. well naturally you know sellable is maybe that's the wrong way of looking at it you're an artist you're trying to tell stories and, and the best art always comes from yourself you know when I see actors when I go and watch plays and I see actors you know doing their thing and, and it's all great and it's really good but I like to see those people where you can see them really using something from themselves mm. for example I saw a clip the other day of Ellen McCrory's production of Medea and I watched this clip of her and I was like this woman is transcending acting something real is happening and and I love to see that you know when we come from these working class backgrounds the world tells us that we're not good enough that we are the problem in society all this stuff actually those things that we experience going through those experiences that we go through that is our little bit of magic in a way yeah agreed i mean a lady came when i was at drama school and, I, and she said this thing and i never forget i never understood at the time she said it's the parts of you that you don't like is where the magic is sometimes the parts of you that you try to hide or that you don't want people to see or that you think make you lesser are, is actually the thing that is the magic for you. That's the thing yeah. that will separate you from the rest, yeah? That's the advice that I'd give to any, you know, working class actors out there that, you know, want to get into this or that have aspirations and believe in yourself because, you know, the system isn't designed for people, for working class people to believe in themselves, you know? And it is starting to change. Believe in what you have believe in your talent yeah practically i'd say aim for the stars apply to all the top drama schools apply to things you know the amateur dramatic things in your local area wherever you can what you need to do is just get as much experience as you can so you can fine-tune that that thing that you have that uniqueness about you you can put it out there and test and and play with it with other people and and learn from others as well and you know watch things read books what, I mean, this is for young people, for anyone actually. Watch, watch as much theatre as you can. Watch as much films as you can. Watch films and theatre that you wouldn't normally go and see. Read books. That you're just feeding, you're feeding yourself so that when you do get a bit of text or whatever it might be, you start to have ideas. That's great advice. Do you, do you have anything to add, Giles? Yeah, I would completely, I'd completely back that up and say that actually when I started working and I've been doing it for about 20 years now, what I've seen is that the majority of actors that, you, that I was working with were working class, came from working class backgrounds. And subsequently over the years, I think, you know, theatre fits into our society and our society has changed. So the divide between people who can afford and people who can't afford has been grown and grown and grown and widened and widened and widened. So the fact is, if going to drama school or going to any higher education institution is going to cost you so much money and you don't have that money you're not going to be able to go there the only people who are going to be able to go there are the people whose mummy and daddy can afford mm-hmm. to pay for them to send them there and therefore you end up getting as as you mentioned earlier there's lots of people from from harrow and eaton mm-hmm. and, and all these kind of different places because those are the people who can afford to go and as mike said it's not geared up for people from working class backgrounds to be able to have the confidence or the facility to be able to find their way through so that's why i think it's really important that 
as Mike says, you find, first of all, you've got to find your people, you've got to find your tribe, you've got to find other people who are like-minded like you and use each other, help each other and cling on to that thing. Mike and I, it was a bunch of, <laughs> it was a Sorry. bunch of, <laughs> there's a cat just appeared on the screen then. <laughs> um, there was, there was some, there was some young students who came to see Blue Orange the other night in Oxford and we, they were, we were, they came round to the stage door afterwards and they were talking to us as we were in theatre one of them was saying how she felt, you know, she's really passionate about wanting to be an actor, but then all of a sudden she was like, oh God, can I do this? Can I do that? And, you know, you had to say, well, that spark that was in you initially was there for a reason. That's very powerful. That's the thing that got you to, to go to the drama college that you were at at the first place. That's the thing that made you want to go and see shows and mm. go and see movies. And you have to cling on to that for dear life. And actually that will never leave you. That spark, yeah. that, you, that initial spark you had you need to retain it as long as possible. Everything else is built on top of that. You know, everything that's else so is true. accolades and awards and all of that, and that's all fine. But actually, that spark ha- has to be there, mm-hmm. and you have to really, really trust that, you know? Yeah. Um, and if you can cling on to that, you know, also the other thing I'd say, you know, you mentioned Hamilton earlier. I always say Hamilton's a really good example because Lin-Manuel was looking around and not seeing the kind of stories that he wanted to tell being told he you know he people like him weren't playing the kind of characters that he wanted to be able to play and so he just wrote it himself came up with a crazy idea about founding fathers and hip-hop and it's about the finance i mean it minister. is an insane idea when you lay it out like that exactly honest, yeah and then cut to however many years later yeah. it's a kind of the world kind of catches up with him he it wasn't a sellable idea at all but he said that's what i want to do that's what I believe in. That's what I'm passionate about. And I'm going to do it for its own sake. And then the world kind of caught up with it. So I think that's a good lesson for young people. It's like, what is your version of Hamilton? What is your thing that you're really passionate about? And stick to that. And then the world will catch up with you. Yeah. But I mean, it, that, that kind of might make it sound slightly easy, but you have to cling on to your fire, I think, because that's the only thing that we've got, I think, as artists. Yeah. You can't second guess what people are going to, what the industry is going to want or what agents are going to want. You have to be true to yourself. A hundred percent. I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because, what, can I say one more thing? Yeah, please do, Michael. One of the bigger mistakes that we make as actors, as, you know, especially coming from the background that we come from, is what Giles says, is that we think we're going to find what we're looking for through, you know, someone or an agent or a casting director or a director or whatever. And yes, they play a part in this in this game. But actually, you have to have a very clear idea of what you want to mm-hmm. do in this industry. Yeah. And the more you hold true to that idea and that belief, and you work with a certain level of integrity towards that, it will come into fruition in some form. Amen. It's, it's, I think that's a law. I think that's actually a, a law of nature that, you know, mm-hmm. everything we have comes out of someone's mind in some way. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm getting a bit deep. But even down to this laptop in front of me, someone right. had an idea to make a laptop and, and they made it happen because right. they believed that the idea was real to and them. I, I still and don't I, understand how it does work, if I'm completely honest. <laughs> <laughs> the cerebral acting chat, I can do that. The laptop, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, but that's holding on to that, that thing that Giles was talking about and, and taking care of that. Yeah. And even when people say things that to damage that, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that get said in this industry and I think they can, they create limiting beliefs. Thank you, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've genuinely thoroughly enjoyed talking to both of you. And... Yeah, so have I, man. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thanks really for having good. us. 
issue for all women.